I'm going to invite you to turn your Bibles to Mark 12 today. It's going to be up on the screen as well. We're going to be reading verses 13 through 34 together. And they sent some to him of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius. Let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and whose and what inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. And Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. And the first one took a wife and when he died left no offspring. And the second took her and died leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as a wife. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. And of the scribes, one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is like this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one. And there is no other besides him. To love him with all your heart, with all the understanding, with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to them, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Jesus, would you open our eyes today to your word? Would you open our hearts and our mind? Give us strength Lord, empower us by your Holy Spirit to receive this good news. We pray all this in your name, Jesus. Amen. What an interesting passage we have uh, before us today. It's really three questions, three encounters that they have with Jesus. And, and it's really a glorious display of our king's wisdom. All that we just read about the Pharisees, the Herodians, the Sadducees, that's just background. It's just a frame to, to show the matchless wisdom of Christ. He cannot be beaten by these inferior little men. They come with their mischievous 
little questions, their, their satanic conundrums. You know, they've, they've plotted and worked these out. They've sat in their beds at night and they go, oh, I know what I'll ask Jesus tomorrow. This, this will be it. I will trip him up tomorrow. And what we've seen time and time again are that these manufactured gotcha questions utterly fall flat. And in fact, the comeback from Jesus always lays them flat. We just saw this happen last week. You'll remember the end of Mark 11. They came to Jesus and they questioned his authority. This is 11.28. By what authority are you doing these things, they asked. Now Jesus hits back with a comeback. I will ask you one question. Answer me and I will tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. John's baptism. Was it from heaven or of human origin? Tell me. And they know they've been beaten. They know they've been beaten. They know because he's just trapped them. And if they can't answer this, then he's not going to answer them. So they look at him and they go, well, we, don't, we don't know. You know. I'm sorry? What did you say? We don't know, Jesus. <laughs> we can't answer. Well, they could answer. They won't because it's pathetic. They're pathetic people. In chapter 12, they've come back for more. And this time there's an unholy alliance. They have the Herodians on one side, the Pharisees. They, they hate each other. And yet it's sort of the enemy of my enemy is my friend type of thing. And now they've come together to plot together to, to try to throw one more at Jesus. Let's see if we can get him one more time. They've done this back in Mark 3, 6. All the way back in Mark 3, 6, they've come together and they started to plot about how best to kill Jesus. Now, I want to stop for a moment before we get too deep into this. And let's just ask ourselves a question. This is a question we often take for granted. Why do they want Jesus dead? Right? We, we sort of know the answer, don't we? We sort of like in our back of mind, we could come up with an answer. But, but we, we really need to consider this for a moment. These are, these are grown men, religious leaders, political leaders, and they want a carpenter from Nazareth dead. Why? Why do they want Jesus dead? Well, Psalm 2 gives us the answer. Psalm 2 gives us the answer. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against Yahweh and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart, cast away their cords from us. Well, why do they want him dead? Because sinful man hates the kingship of Christ. They hate the rule of Christ. His rule means I'm not in charge. Him on the throne means I'm not on the throne. It means all of us must answer to a higher authority and they don't like it. And so men throughout time have plotted and they've schemed. They've made up their little plans and they've sought to kill Jesus. They've thought, sought to kill his church. They've sought to kill his message. Let me tell you, it doesn't work. It never has. It never will. How do we know that? God's response. <laughs> What is God's response to these evil machinations in Psalm 2? The one who sits enthroned laughs. And so Jesus is not phased or surprised by these scoundrels. Instead, he sends them away with their tails between their legs every single time. Verse 34. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. He sends them away. They've tried and tried and tried, and finally they go, all right, question's not going to work. Hey, hey, you, hey, let's get the new guy. You go talk to Jesus. No, I'm not talking to Jesus. You go talk to Jesus. I, I did that last time. 
It doesn't work. He's too smart. So we have to kill him. We have to silence him another way. These religious men, because of their sinful hearts, they stand at the border of the kingdom. You're not far from the kingdom. You're right at the border, and yet you refuse to enter in because of your sin. They're so close, yet so far away. If you remember the show Get Smart, it's an old one. Maxwell Smart would say, missed it by that much. And it was never that much. It was a lot. (laughs) You'd miss it by. Well, if you've missed it by that much, you've missed it entirely. There's so many like these people today who stand at the border of God's kingdom. They, they're neither hot nor cold. They're lukewarm. And they, they ride the fence of faith. They sit in pews for years without entering into God's kingdom. Without putting their trust in God and in Christ our Lord. And so today I pray that's not us. I pray that's none of us here today. And, and so for the time before us, left before us, let's look at the three questions that they pose to Jesus. And then let's see what we can learn about how we move from the border into the blessed kingdom of Christ. The three points. The first point is we bear the mark of the king. The second point is we were made for the king. And the third point is we are to love the king. So looking at the first question, this is, Mark twelve fourteen. They came to him and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true. You don't care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances, but, they tru- but truly teach the way of God. Now, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? They start out with that false flattery. You know, oh, teacher, <laughs> we know that you're true. You know, they're trying to butter up Jesus. He sees right through it. They're not genuine they're not, they're not, they're, you know, if Jesus ever rolled his eyes, this was the moment, right? And so he looks at them. He, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Jesus, just answer the question. This is, this is their version of stump the pastor. Okay. Do you pay taxes to Caesar or not? All right. You're going to tell us to pay the taxes. You know, you know who Caesar is, right? We're going to get you. It's a gotcha question. And Jesus, verse 15, it says, knowing their hypocrisy, sees right through them. He says, why put me to the test? Haven't, haven't we done this, guys? Haven't, why are we doing this again? Really? Really? You're coming back for more. Haven't you guys had enough? Back in Mark 3, they trapped Jesus. They tried to, he heals the man on the Sabbath, and they're trying to get him. In Mark 7, they question him. What, what's up with your disciples' eating habits, Jesus? Back, back in, in Mark 8, they come to Jesus. They say, we demand a sign from heaven. And it says there, Jesus sighs deeply. You know, it's that parental sigh when your kid's done something at that. You know, again, we're doing this again. Mark 10 too. some Pharisees came and they tested him. And so it's just relentless. And this is why God laughs, because the troublemakers never get it. They're like the modern day atheists. You know, they sit on their computers and the God that they know doesn't exist is all they can think about, you know, It's they spend all their time arguing about religion when they don't care about the religion, supposedly. Why are they wasting their time? Why do the nations rage? Why do the kings set themselves up? Because they are terrified of Jesus. They are terrified of his message because his message blows the world's message out of the water. It's a message of life. It's a message of salvation. They have a message of death. 
And so they want him dead. So Jesus says, okay, you jokers, you clowns, we're going to do this again. Give me a coin. Who here has a coin? Now you can imagine the scene. Someone hands him a coin and they're waiting. What's he going to say? You know, is he going to do it? Are we going to trap him? Jesus maybe, you know, looks the coin over. Whose face is that? What inscription is that? At the time, the face was that of Tiberius Caesar. And the inscription said something like, Son of the divine Augustus, meaning Caesar, the son of God. And so he says, whose face is that? Caesar, Jesus. Okay, pay him the tax. That's what he says. He says, if it's Caesar's face on it, it must belong to him, right? Pay him the tax. Now you can imagine, we got him. We fi- Aha, we finally got you. Did you hear him? Everyone heard him. Pay the tax. Oh, we got Jesus. Render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. You heard him. Then he says, and to God, the things that are God's. And they go, oh, no, we didn't get him, did we? <laughs> no, actually, he got us again. Oh, everybody, pack up the shop, you know. He got us again. Because what Jesus does is he rightly orders our loves. He's putting the role of politics, the role of civic duty in its proper realm. We are citizens of America, but we are first and foremost citizens of God, of God's kingdom. And so that authority of Jesus, that allegiance we owe to our king rests above our allegiance to America. I'm going to put it this way. If you're back in middle school, And you come up on your seat, this is where you always sit, and there's some guy sitting in your seat, and you say, hey, that's my seat. What does he say? Well, I didn't see your name on it. And you're beaten. You know by the rules that exist for all middle schoolers, he has you dead to rights. Your name is not written on that seat. So next time, you're going to write your name on it. Uh Aha! You know, everyone wonders why there's so much graffiti. We're just trying to mark our stuff. If something doesn't have your name on it, finders, keepers, losers, weepers. Well, what is Jesus saying? Whose name is on the coin? Caesar's. Whose name is on you? God's. Whether you like it or not, the image of God is emblazoned on every single human being on earth. That means all of us owe him our allegiance. All of us must pour ourselves out as a heavenly currency in honor of the king. All humanity bears the mark of the king. Therefore, we must praise and give him the honor he is due. That's what Jesus is saying. Yeah, pay the tax. It's got his name on it. It's his coin. But you bear the mark of the king. Pour your lives out for Christ, for me, for God. What's their response? End of 17. They marveled at him. Isn't that a wonder? He, he beats them and they go, you got to admit, he's good. I mean, they're just marveled at his answer. And I read this and I think, well, what about us? How many questions must God answer from us until we're satisfied? How many more questions will we berate him with? How many times has he answered us until we will be silent and shut our mouths and just marvel at him? We need to listen to his words. We need to be amazed at the wisdom of Christ. That's the first point. The second point is that we were made for the king. Now the Sadducees come. Now it's their turn. Verse 18. 
And the Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection, and they asked him a question. Now, you've got to stop for a moment and just kind of laugh at this a little bit. The Sadducees are coming to him with a question about what? The resurrection. They don't believe in the resurrection. <laughs> okay? So, again, they're disingenuous. And these poor men, these, they're so gloomy. I don't know if you know this or not. They're gloomy. They're downcast. How do I know that? Because they didn't believe in the resurrection. That made them sad, you see? That's a, that's a Sunday school answer for you. That's how you remember it. And so they've come with this absurd, crude question for Jesus. And this is what people in our day and age do. They'll, they'll, they'll make up these uh, extreme positions, these extreme minority positions in order to argue for something for the majority. And so these types of people, they come, they're disingenuous, and they're usually extremely ignorant. They, they want to argue with you from the Bible, but they actually have no clue what it says. Well, here's the Sadducees. Welcome to the Sadducees. Hello, Jesus, they say. Here's a twisted tale for you. One bride for seven brothers. Right? It's a, it kind of ruins the musical for you. Jesus, we have one bride, and based on Deuteronomy 25, you know, Moses tells us, she has to keep marrying these brothers until she produces an heir, until there's the name that's carried on. Right? This is the same Leveret law we saw back in Ruth when we went through Ruth many months ago. And what they want Jesus to do is now they want him to pit the law of God against the resurrection. Well, we don't believe in the resurrection, Jesus, and we've found a way to prove that it's, there is no resurrection. Aha, we've got you. What are you going to say to this one? Verse 24. Jesus said to them, is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. You know what you guys' problem is? You've never actually read the Bible. <laughs> Do you, did you even know? Can, can we get the scriptures over here for these people? They, they actually have no clue what they actually say. Can you imagine what they are feeling at this point if you're a Sadducee? I mean, the, the rage you are feeling. Have you ever read this thing? Decimates them. You claim to be experts, and yet everything you just said was quite wrong. And it's not just the scriptures that Jesus says the Sadducees are messed up on. They have no concept about the true power of God. What can God really do? Verse 25. For when they rise from the dead, again, hear the certainty of Jesus. When they rise, they will rise. They neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Now, the comical thing about this is, guess what the Sadducees also didn't believe in? Angels. <laughs> so Jesus says, not only are you wrong about the resurrection, but hey, guess what? They're just like the angels, which you guys also are wrong about. That must have set them off. Their, tur their, their, tur you know, their little toes are curling. Their hands are fists. Jesus does something we need to be careful not to skip over. He brings us back to the burning bush. Why on earth... Is he talking about the bush? Why are you talking about Moses' encounter with the bush? We're talking about resurrection, Jesus. Stick to the topic. Well, think about it this way. From a human perspective, how long has it been since Moses to us? How long has it been since Moses to 2022? The answer is a long time. <laughs> but even from Abraham to Moses, that was a decently long period of time. So he's saying when Yahweh addresses Moses from the bush... And he says, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What, what is he saying? He's saying, I'm the God of people who are still going. Not dead people. 
I am the God of the resurrection. Uh, And when the resurrection of the dead comes, you will see Abraham and Isaac sitting there smiling, happy as clams. Why? Because he's not the God of the dead, but of the living. Pastor Sinclair Ferguson puts it like this. God's covenant promise to save his people, I will be your God and you will be my people, would not be of any significance if it were overcome and shattered by death. It would be a tawdry salvation which lasted only for this life. You see, that's the Sadducees' problem. And it's also our problem as well. How often do we fail to really know and study God's word? And how often do we fail to recognize and trust in God's power? If someone came in here and said, hey, could you, one of you here give me the proof of the resurrection? What, what's the proof of the resurrection? Would we go back to the bush? Maybe not. Maybe somebody would say, well, I just read this lovely book the other day. And this little boy died, and he said he went to heaven, and he saw God there, and he came back, and he wrote this lovely little book. Or actually, I read this other lovely little book where an old guy died, and he said he saw God, and he came back, and he wrote this book to tell us. Is that where you should go? No, that's hogwash. You need to go to the scriptures. You see, that's what Jesus is saying. The word of God is sufficient to answer our problems, to answer our questions. He could have looked at the Sadducees and said, what do you think about Job 19? Job says, I know my Redeemer lives and I shall see him in my flesh. What do you think about that? Do you believe that? What about Elijah who was taken up to heaven? What about Psalm 16? In your presence is fullness of joy. Psalm 23, I shall dwell in the house of the Lord for a little while, forever. Do you know this? Do you believe this? See, we have great hope in Christ, don't we? And yet how often we doubt. Christianity is so different. It's so different from something like uh, Islam. You know, this is the hope that Allah will have mercy. They just hope Allah will have mercy. We know Christ will have mercy. We know it. We have full assurance that those who come to Jesus in faith and repent of their sins and believe, they will have assurance of salvation. We know What about Buddhism? What about Hinduism? They have the wheel of karma, the the wheel of samsara, this endless cycle of rebirth and and reincarnation. They hope, you know, I'm a pretty good jumper. Maybe I was a grasshopper in my last life. And so now I just, you know, I need to be better this life. These scales. What about Mormonism? They're aiming for their own planets. They want to be gods themselves. They, They actually would have liked the Sadducees question. You know, multiple wives, multiple husbands. I'm down. That's what they're aiming for. What do we do? We tell these false religions exactly what Jesus told the Sadducees. You are quite wrong. (laughs) And you know why you're quite wrong? Because you do not know the scriptures and you do not know the power of God. You must repent. You're wrong. Now, before we move to our final point, I want to linger here for a moment. These smart Alex Sadducees have actually given us something to chew on a bit. They've posed this absurd question, but hidden in the absurd question is actually an interesting point. And it's something that when I was younger, and I still even think about now, it used to irk me a little bit. Will I still have a relationship with my wife in heaven? Will you still know your father and mother? What about your kids? For those who have kids, what, what will that look like? That's a difficult question. 
But again, what does Jesus tell us to do? Go to the scriptures. Let's see what God's word said. The first thing is that we mustn't be ignorant about the power and the goodness of God. 1 Corinthians 2.9, Paul writes this. Eye has not seen nor ear heard, neither has it entered into the heart of man the things that God has prepared for them that love him. You see, we must not think God has something less planned for us in heaven than we currently have now. We can't even fathom what he has planned for us in the life to come. The second thing is that although we will be changed and transformed, this is still us. I'm still going to be me. Right? My body will be raised imperishable, but it will still be Heath. David, King David looks forward to a day of being reunited with his dead son. He says, I shall go to him. Paul urges bereaved Christians not to sorrow as those who have no hope, for God will bring with, those to him, with him those who sleep in Jesus. And he says, the reason we do not grieve as unbelievers is because we have hope we're going to be reunited. And we'll know each other. Again, we will not know less in heaven than we do on earth. And we have to remember Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are named individuals. So when I get to heaven, I'm going to go, hey, there's Abraham. (laughs) Hey, there's Isaac. Hey, there's Jacob. We'll know each other. Thirdly, with regards to our special relationships, there's a guy, an author named Edward Donnelly. He has just an excellent quote for us. He writes this, he says, We are told that many aspects of marriage will no longer be appropriate in glory where they neither marry nor are given in marriage. There will be no reproduction. The husband will not need a helper nor the wife someone to cherish her protectively. Children will not need parental care. The relationship between Christ and his church will be so obvious as to render unnecessary a human illustration. Does this mean then that your husband or my best friend will be no more to us than anyone else among the multitudes of the redeemed? I don't think so, he says. For every good thing we will be better in heaven than on earth. And if God has given you a Christian husband or wife, parent or child, brother or friend, you can be sure that whatever the parameters of your future relationship with them may be, the friendship will be closer there than it is now. You will know them more intimately, love them more intensely, delight in them more fully. It is impossible that we should lose anything good in that place where good abounds. We can look at Christians whom we love, especially and praise God. We will continue to love them more and more forever and ever. Amen. So those of you with believing spouses, I want you to consider this. Your marriage is temporary, but your friendship is just beginning. Your friendship with your children is eternal. With your parents is eternal. We will worship together. We will play together. We will sing together. We will fellowship glory and glory forever with one another. It will not be boring. (laughs) And so marriage was always meant to be a living temporary illustration of the future eternal marriage we will have with Christ between his church. Do not be like the Sadducees. Be happy. (laughs) Study God's word, delight in it, meditate on it day and night, fall in love with the king you were made for him. 
Delight in him. Know the power of God. Put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And by doing so, you will move from the border and you will enter into the kingdom of God. Third and final point. We are to love the king. The first two questions failed. You know what they say. Third time's a charm. Let's not give up now. Verse 28. One of the scribes came up, heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, he asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Now you can see the trap in there. Is Jesus going to elevate one command of God over the other? What's he going to do? Jesus answers with the Shema, which was and really is the centerpiece of the Jewish faith. It was this, this is here. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. In verse 31, the second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Do you see what Jesus has just done? The man essentially asked, what's the most important law in God's kingdom? And Jesus says, all of them. All of them. Because he summarized all the law and the prophets in those two commands. Love God, love others. All the law and the prophets point to those two things. The commentator William Barclay says, the love that is conveyed in these commands is a love which does three things. It's a love which dominates our emotions, directs our thoughts, and is the dynamic of all our actions. And so what he's saying is, citizen, kingdom citizens are not just hearers of the word, we are doers of the word. Because we love the king. Because the king has commanded us to do something and we want to please him. We want to carry out his commands. It grieves us when we grieve him. We want to obey Jesus Christ. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Now take note of the alls really quick in the Shema. All your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. Now when I read that, I say, some of my heart, bits of my soul, fractions of my mind, parts of my strength. Is that what it says? The king is jealous for all of me. The king wants all of you. There will be no other gods before him. And the scribe, by God's grace, gets it. Verse 33, to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. He comes to Jesus. He wants to catch him. He wants to beat him. And he leaves going, maybe, I, maybe there's something to this. Maybe he's on to something. He's not saying that the sacrifices are irrelevant. God instituted them. What he's acknowledging is that obedience born out of love for God is better than sacrifice. It is the love of Christ that should compel us. Here's what I mean by this. Pastor Charles Spurgeon, he said this. This day, my God, I hate sin not because it damns me, but because it has done thee wrong. To have grieved my God is the worst grief to me. You see, it's not, I'm sad because I got caught. I'm sad because of who I hurt. I hate my sin because of who I have rebelled against. I love God so much, it grieves me 
that I have broken his commands. That's what he says. That's what kingdom citizens act like. What about loving your neighbors? Let's go back to the first question. Why should I love my neighbor? Because they're neighborly? Because they're made in God's image. And if my king values them, created them for a purpose, then who am I not to love them and care for them and treat them with respect? Why should I love God? Go back to the second question. Because we're made for him. Because Christ has died from us. From heaven he came and sought her, the church, to be his holy bride. With his own blood he bought her, and for her life he died. Our God is the God of Abraham and Isaac, of Jacob. He's the God of the living, not the dead. He's the covenantal God who promised to be God to me, to my children, and their children. I love him. I want to close with the remarkable words of Jesus. Just absolutely something that all of us should take to heart. Verse 34. And when Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to them, you are not far from the kingdom of God. You're not far. I think back to the rich young ruler. You remember a couple weeks ago, the rich young ruler came up to Jesus. He says, one thing you lack. One thing you lack. You're not far, but you're not in. What's, what's the thing? I don't know, Jesus. You see, I, I'm a good person. I'm a nice person. I do nice things. I'm religious, I guess. I mean, I go to church. I, I, I'm, I love God. I like God the best I can. It's not all, 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 all. But at least it's some, 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 some. Won't that be good enough, Jesus? Pastor Alistair Begg says, no matter how good you feel about yourself, you haven't lived a day of your life when you love God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength, and neither have I. If perfection is the standard for entry, how is anybody going in? The end. Let's close. here. <laughs> Wouldn't that be a lousy ending for us? There's no hope. What a privilege it is for me to have the good news. <laughs> what a joy it is for us. You've made it into this room. <laughs> what grace that God has brought you into this room. To tell you that your failing report card could be replaced with the A plus of Christ. That in Christ you are a new creation. All the old, whatever you've done in this life, all the past sins you've committed could be forgotten. And cast as far as the east is from the west. God's word tells us that while we were yet sinners, while we were enemies of God, Christ died for us. That's good news. And this gift of grace and mercy is now extended to all of those who stand at the border. If you're on the border of the kingdom, I have great news. You're not far off. Let's push you over today. Let's get you in the kingdom. Look to Christ and be saved. The king of the country is calling you in. Repent of your sins. You bear his mark. He's marked you for a purpose. You have value. You are important. Come in. Your value was shown at Calvary's hill. It's stained in blood, the blood of Christ. He's worthy. Socrates taught for 40 years. Plato taught for 50. Aristotle taught for 40. Jesus taught for three years. And yet those three years transcend 
all the influence combined of those 130 years of those men. Jesus painted no pictures. Raphael, da Vinci, Michelangelo, they were inspired by him. Jesus wrote no poetry. Dante, Milton, scores throughout time have wrote masterpieces about our Christ. No music was written by Jesus. Handel, Beethoven, Bach, Mendelssohn. They reached their highest perfection when they were writing praises to his name. Every sphere of human greatness has been incomparably enriched by this carpenter from Nazareth of who people hate. Philosophy could not accomplish what he did. Art could not accomplish it. Literature, music, science, nothing holds a candle to the light of Jesus Christ. And only Jesus Christ can break the power of sin and death. Only Jesus can bring dead men and women back to life. Some people adopt him as a mere example. They sit on the border of the kingdom. They admire his kingdom. Oh, that's lovely. What a lovely king. I'll never worship him. By the power of the Spirit, some enter into his gates. And I want that for all of us today. Don't don't you? What about me? Ask yourself that question. What about me? What is it you lack? Are you far from the kingdom? Are you at the border? Are you in the gates? Are you, are you, are you at the throne? What wall of sin or unbelief is holding you back today? Would you get rid of it? Will a pastor one day stand up before your casket? Could be soon, could be many years from now. Will he say he was so close? She, was, she missed it by that much. Lord, may it not be so. I want today to be the day we move from the border into the everlasting king of the God of the living. Let's pray.